0: ready? You have your Bibles? Turn to Acts 24 if you have your Bibles, or iPods, or whatever you have. Acts 24, this is how it changes everything teaching series. Uh, The weekend's message title is The Verdict. Let me start off by asking you a question, somewhat of a, possibly a convicting question. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? In other words, if people were watching your life, would they come to the conclusion that there's plenty of evidence in your life that you love Jesus more than anything, that He is the God of your life, He's at the center of your life? It's a good question. Number of years ago, I think it's been about six, maybe eight years ago, when we were meeting over at the old nightclub, 17th Avenue, Bell Road. How many remember those days? Show of hands? Oh yeah, we still got a bunch of you around. And I was pulling out of the parking lot after a tough weekend, and uh, we were doing the three services, one on Saturday night, two on Sunday morning. I was pretty exhausted, couldn't wait to get home. I was in my big old Dodge truck, and as I was, there was like a little two-way stop in that parking lot because there was a lot of traffic that came in there. There was a bank and a Checker Auto and a bunch of stuff, and so a lot of people came through the parking lot. Came up to the two-way stop after this uh, other guy had already come up there, so he got there first. And I sat there and waited for him to go, but he didn't go. So I went ahead and pulled out in front of him. Maybe I was a little impatient, and as I was pulling out in front of him, he flips me off, and uh, and then he proceeded to chase me through the parking lot. Like he was running, coming after me. Like he's going he's gonna to take me on. And do you ever have those moments in your, in your life where something rises up within you that's not very nice? And uh, I had one of those kind of flashback. If you're familiar with the old Clint Eastwood movies, go ahead and make my day. Anybody? Show of hands. It's like, okay, dude, you're, you just made my day. I will run you off the road, even in this parking lot, if I have to go 70 miles an hour in Jesus' name. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm like this. He's like something rose up in me. I was like, okay, dude, I'll take you on. And uh, don't you dare get in my way. I need to get home and study for next weekend's message, Loving Your Neighbor as Yourself. And so the irony of that—I'm just coming out of a out of teaching, having taught people about the love of Jesus—and I'm ready to kill someone in the parking lot. So the irony, the contradiction of that, was obviously pretty convicting for me. And I've certainly had plenty of those times in my life. And and it's the very reason why I don't have a DB window sticker on my car. I have a CCV window sticker on my car. Okay, I, that was bad. I've used that before. I'm going to have to quit using that one. But uh, um, the, the, what occurred to me during that was that, is the truth you're teaching the truth you are living? And, and too often there has been in my own life this, this gospel gap between my spirituality and my reality, between my beliefs and my behavior. And I, I certainly understand that if you're a brand-new believer, there will be a gap There will be a gap between your spirituality and your reality. But if you've been walking with Christ a considerable amount of time, as I have, there should be a narrowing of that gap, that there should be something about your your behavior that is consistent with your beliefs. And so when I ask this question, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? There should be evidence in your life that you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And... And I think it's important, you know, really to understand as I ask that question, the question really is does your behavior validate or invalidate your beliefs? If it invalidates your beliefs, then you would be classified as a practical atheist, actually. You say you believe in God and yet it seems as though everything about your life doesn't actually demonstrate that. Saying we believe something and really believing it are two different things. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by that. Now, as I think about this, this isn't in any way kind of a... We we just talked about having a clear conscience. This is not a guilt trip whatsoever. In fact, when your behavior invalidates your beliefs, what do you do? Too often, being raised in the church, what would we do? We would focus on your behavior. Come on, buck up. Come on, try harder. Redouble your efforts. Pull yourself up. You can do better. And that's actually not what you should focus on. You shouldn't focus on your behavior, nor should you even focus on your beliefs. In fact, I'm convinced that the answer is in focusing upon the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in uh, Hebrews 12 too, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. When you understand what he has done for you, <laughs> and your heart is smitten by that, and you and you worship him, that he becomes the at the center of your life that you want him more than anything that's when it really begins to transform not only your beliefs but your your behavior and and that's the goal that's the goal for what we're doing this morning and, and each week that as you come as we come together that you would focus on on jesus because we're reading a book the book of acts is about a group of people who were smitten by the beauty and the glory of the lord jesus christ and it transformed their lives and then they went out throughout the world and proclaimed the gospel because they were not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for the salvation of everyone who believes that's what i want for me that's what i want for you and so let's pray we're going to dive into our study this morning we got some good stuff in store for us would you bow your heads with me let's take a moment once again and go before the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need god we thank you that you're here today you love us with an everlasting love And so, God, as we study your word, reveal your Son, Jesus, to us more clearly. May our hearts be smitten by your beauty and your glory. Help us to learn what it means to fix our eyes upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And as we do that, God, we know that that gap between our spirituality and our reality, between our beliefs and our behavior will begin to narrow. And then we'll be able to live a life that puts you on display for your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So take a look at your uh, the scripture here, Acts 24. We're going to work completely through this text. I'm going to walk you through it. I'll comment briefly, and then we're going to come back and then talk about how we can have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that truly we are followers of Jesus Christ, that, that our lives would really reflect that. We'll, we'll look and see how we can begin to narrow that gap in our lives more and more. Starting in chapter 24, verse 1, and after five days... The high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. So he's not a lawyer, but but a spokesperson. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Let me bring you up to speed if you weren't with us in the last few weeks. As we well know, Paul finished up his three missionary journeys. Paul has been going throughout the outermost parts of the earth, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came back to Jerusalem. There was a mob that tried to kill him in the temple. They drug him outside the temple. They tried to kill him. He was rescued. He was arrested and, uh, and created quite a stir. There was a plot to kill him. So this head official, the highest-ranking Roman official in Jerusalem, decides, well, we need to escort Paul to Caesarea uh, to Felix the governor. And so that's where Paul is now in in trial here under this governor Felix in Caesarea. And that's where we pick up the story. And so the, the elders, the high priest and the elders, come with this spokesman, Tertullus. And so they lay before the governor, Felix, their case against Paul. Now listen to what This spokesperson says, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, he's talking to Felix, the governor, since you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation. Keep in mind, this is a Jewish man that's saying these things, and he's talking to this Roman ruler. Verse 3, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the nazarenes let's stop there just for a minute you get a little bit of a sense that this guy is doing some major kissing up at the beginning of this speech would you agree with that so he is we we would put it in our our vernacular he is sucking up is that true And what's so ironic about this is that he's a Jew. And everything that he said is is the antithesis of what Jews felt about the Roman rule. They despised the Roman oppressors. So this guy's doing some major kissing up. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because you're going to see it. It actually affects the heart of Felix. At the very end, we'll read and we'll see that he kind of makes his decision based on this. And then he goes on. This uh, this spokesperson, Tertullus, really quite interesting. He begins to bring what are known as dogmatic assertions rather than defensible arguments. And I've tried to teach you that for many years. That you need to think. Don't check your brains at the door. Always be thinking. When you turn on the Learning Channel or PBS or History Channel, there are many times they will show they will present these specials about Jesus, which oftentimes. Many times, they contradict the Bible. They contradict the very, uh, the very words that we study day in and day out. Now, what's interesting about what they say is that often, almost all the time, they bring dogmatic assertions, not defensible arguments. There's a major difference between the two. Just because someone makes a dogmatic assertion, that's what this Tertullus is doing. He's making a, a, a dogmatic assertion, but he brings no defensible argument. In fact, you're going to see Paul respond with a defensible argument. The reason why I say that is because you need to know that the Christian faith is uh, it is intellectually sound and existentially satisfying. In other words, it is founded. It is based on historical, uh, evidential Factual, uh, everything about it is, has some substance to it. It, it. it has, it is, it is defensible arguments about who Jesus is. We talk about that all, all the time. So you need to know that it's, it's it's rock solid. So he begins to make these accusations about Paul, and he's a ringleader. Let me start uh, once again with verse five. For we have found this man a plague. So he's a troublemaker. That's one of the accusations. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he's a part of this cult group that's contrary to the government, you know, ruling. And so he's just going to cause problems for the government. And he even tried to profane the temple. So that's the third thing, the accusation that they're making. So he's a troublemaker. Uh, He's part of this cult group that's kind of anti-government. And then he came into the temple and tried to profane the temple, which all of those are not true. But he's making these dogmatic assertions. So he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And then, he, and then this Tertullus says, By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. In other words, we're going to give uh, Paul enough rope to hang himself. So he'll, he'll even admit these things. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. Now notice Paul's response here. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully, this is kind of one of the key phrases here, I cheerfully, we'll come back to this, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So now he's beginning to give defensible arguments. Wait a minute. I went to Jerusalem. I was only there for 12 days. Oh, and and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they n- now bring up against me. In other words, they have no evidence of this. They can't prove this. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, now we we've, we've seen this, They've been calling themselves the way. Why why the way? Because their Savior, Jesus, said in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He is the only way you can have a relationship with God. He is the only way you can really discover your purpose for living. He is the only way that you can find deep satisfaction for your life. Deep, durable satisfaction. So he says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope. So he's describing, hey, we're not part of some cult group. This is what we believe is is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Can you say that? You take great pains. As far as it concerns you, be at peace with all people, with man. 12, 18 of Romans, but not just God, but also with man. We talked about a clear conscience last weekend. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. So I didn't come in to desecrate the the temple in any way. I was purified when I did these things. So he's he's giving evidence without any crowd or tumult. So there wasn't a big crowd around me, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. So there's not not even, even any eyewitnesses here. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before this day. Stop there just for a minute. Take a look up here. This is what he's saying. First of all, you have no basis for your accusations. But if you're going to accuse me of anything, accuse me that I believe in Jesus and the resurrection this fullness of life that we have in him. That's what he's saying. If you're going to accuse me of anything, yes, I believe in Jesus and he resurrected from the grave and he's transformed my life. Pretty good argument. Now, this next section is really an interesting interesting part of this. Because they don't know what to do with him. And you're going to see him. He's going to get bumped eventually up to the next court he's going to make his way all the way to Rome. But Felix verse 22, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, "When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case." Then he gave orders to the Centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And if you had a chance to speak with the head governing official, knowing that he would be the one that would either let set you free or maybe even have you uh, crucified or, or executed, what would you say to him? What does Paul say to him? Talks to him about Jesus. By the way, this idea of faith in Jesus, faith is is not merely an agreement of facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart. I think that Paul was stirring up appetite within this guy and his wife, Felix, and, and Drusilla. I think he was just helping him to see more clearly the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And notice in verse 25, he goes into more detail. He actually gives us the three tenses of salvation right here in verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness, so that's justification, then you and I, through the cross of Jesus Christ, have been set free from the penalty of sins. Our past sins are forgiven, so we've been set free from the penalty of sin. And then notice the next, and self-control. He's talking about sanctification. That's what God does in our life. He's in the process of setting us free from the power of sin working in our lives. And the coming judgment, what is that about? Well, you and I are set free, one of these days we'll be set free from the very presence of sin. We will go to be with God forever, for all eternity. But if you don't know Jesus, you will face the judgment, is what he's saying here. But he's giving us the three tenses there of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Notice how Felix responds. Felix was alarmed. So there's some conviction He's moved, he's stirred, he's like, oh my goodness. If Jesus is everything he says he is, and I've studied this, I know this for a fact, I need to make a decision. And So so Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Now notice this. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Political reasons. This guy's, this guy kind of kissing up to him kind of worked on him. And he made his decision based on this. In favor of the Jews. This is God's word to us this morning. And you'll notice that, that Felix keeps putting off this, this decision for Christ. He's being stirred. And there's a number of barriers. There's roadblocks. There's fear. He's initially kind of fearful. Inconvenience, greed, politics. He uses those all as barriers. But let me just say something about putting off the decision for Christ. That with increased exposure, decreased response equals a hard heart. When you are confronted with the message of Jesus and you keep pushing it back and pushing it back over time, your heart will become hard. Where over time, you will have no sense of feeling, the Bible calls it, Paul called it. We talked about it last week, a seared conscience. Pretty frightening. Pretty frightening. So, let's talk about this. Evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Let me give you the first thing on your notes. So, let's walk through this. How can we narrow the gap in our own lives? First of all, you need to know this. If you're going to live a godly life in the midst of an ungodly society, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted. That's evidence right here with Paul. He's being persecuted. The Bible makes it clear. I've given you some cross-references there. 2 Timothy 3.12. It actually gives us... It's a promise. The Bible promises you that if you try to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Not one of those promises you draw out a promise book or, or, or box, would you? That, that wouldn't be one. you. I'm going to claim this promise today. Praise God. I'm going to probably be persecuted. It's, it's not one of those where you find a lot of great delight in. But yet, the Bible tells us in First uh, Peter 3.14 and Matthew 5.10-12... through 12, It actually says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So what is that saying? It's actually saying that there is a blessing that comes when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you are persecuted for Christ. Blessed is a word that means total fulfillment, complete well-being. So there's a dimension of, of the reality of God that you will experience that otherwise you probably wouldn't experience. How many have ever experienced... You know, persecution, people making fun of you. When, you. when you are vocal about Jesus, people have shunned you. Maybe you haven't gotten raises. Maybe maybe people don't want to have anything to do with you. Show of hands. How many have ever experienced that before? Yeah, quite a number of people. You know, it's interesting. I, I know that I've experienced it. I've even experienced probably more of that even within a church setting. People who have made false accusations, things said about me. People that have walked out of a service even like this, kind of flip me off, go, poof. I don't believe that. So it's kind of interesting and the Bible says that there is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness uh, sake i, I don 't know that much about this guy but uh, but I kind of like what I see of him and how many are familiar with tebow football player tebow you guys like three of us in here anybody know who i 'm talking about tebow the, you know the, the, the bad the, you know he 's a great guy the only bad thing about him is he plays for Denver Broncos. I knew that i 'd get a Get you all riled up on that one. How many Denver Bronco fans do we have in the house? <laughs> that's good. Dondi's a Denver Bronco fan. I just, that's, that. <laughs> That's good. That's good. But you know what? I like Tebow and he's taken some major hits. I, I don't know if you've read a lot of the articles because he's outspoken about his faith. And, uh. And there's just something about he just he's making a stand. He doesn't care. And I think he's a one tough dude. You know, I, I pray for him. I think we should pray for guys like that. We should pray for each other because we're going to take hits. And, um, and I think that there's a blessing. There's a blessing that can come as a result of that. God's presence, his power in our lives. Listen to this quote from St. Augustine. This is what he says. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory. And it dazzled me. In my deepest wound, I saw your glory. Do you think that's possible? I do. And it dazzled me. I, my, my, uh, the way that I read through the scripture. I usually read through the Bible at least a couple times a year. I don't actually read. I've got it on my phone and I listen to it. Okay. And I'll go back to it and underline certain things. So I usually go a couple times a year. So, but I go through the the, uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs once a month. I'll go completely through the Psalms and the Proverbs you know, once a month. And so I was reading this last week in Psalm 84. You guys are familiar with it. Psalm 84 where it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul longs, faints for the courts of the Lord. So it talks about this level of intimacy. And as you work through the text, it's really quite interesting. Because in, in verse 6, it says... As they pass through the valley of Baca. So it talks about this level of intimacy. And then as they pass through the valley of Baca. The valley of Baca is weeping. This is what it says. As they pass through the valley of Baca. Of weeping. Of persecution. Of pain. Of problem. Of suffering. They make it a place of springs. What is it saying? I I think it's saying the worst times can become the best times if it draws your heart closer to God. And what the Bible is saying, that even during times of persecution, if you take a stand for God, that it's in the worst times can be the best times because you have a sense of His presence probably unlike you'll ever experience before. Next point in your notes, if you are inflated by praise, you'll be deflated by criticism and therefore lose all objectivity in your ability to make wise decisions. And that's what was going on through this Tertullus Obviously, you know, not a lawyer but a spokesperson kissing up to Governor Felix, verse 27 as we read, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So here's the point. Whatever inflates you will deflate you. So if you're inflated by praise, that's why criticism stings so bad. When people criticize you, because you put so much weight on what people say about you. If you're inflated by marriage, getting married, got to get married. You're going to be deflated if you don't get married. If you're inflated because of how your kids perform, you're going to be deflated when they don't perform. So you can get a little bit of a hint of where you have attached your heart. It it's a, it's a, it's a, kind of gives you a marker and I, you know, a way of identifying idolatry in in your life. And and something that's always stood out to me as it relates to idols, if you can't live without it, you can't safely live with it. Whether it be getting married or the marriage being what you thought it should be or could be or having kids or how your kids turn out or, or landing that big job or having enough money in the bank or whatever it is, what is it that inflates you? Because that very thing will deflate you. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's, you know... Whatever it is, whatever, you know, it could be any number of things in your life. Listen to what John Newton said. You've heard me state this many times before. If you understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times leaveable. And when he's talking about a holy moderation in our life, listen to this next quote by uh, Tim Keller. I don't particularly like it. because It's convicting. Listen to what he says. If grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it. What? I want life to go the way I want it. So I must not really understand grace to the degree that I should understand it. If grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it as long as we have Him. The joys of acclaim, wealth, and power are nothing compared to the eternal acclaim, wealth, and power we have in Him, in the cross, in what He gives us. I believe it, but i got to be honest with you. I don't always live there. There's a major gap between my spirituality and my reality. But I want to get it there. I pray to God every day Lord, help me to see you more clearly. And that's the answer. Let's go to the next one. We're going to take it a little bit deeper here. We're going to talk now this next point. The most important and decisive factor in life is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. We're talking about the heart. We're going to talk more about the heart next week. And so I'm going to kind of touch on it here, kind of to give you a little bit of an appetizer, but you're going to have to come back next week to talk more about it, about guarding our heart. But so, we, so if we want to narrow the gap, we've got to dive into our heart. We've got to begin to see what is going on within our heart. So the most important and decisive factor in life is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. I heard that originally from John Maxwell, but I've heard a lot of others say the same statement. What that is telling me is that through the difficulties is that character is both displayed and can be developed through suffering. I gave you a number of verses that make that pretty clear. Charles Swindoll put it this way, life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond to it. Uh, Larry Crabb put it this way, how a person mentally evaluates an event determines how he feels about that event and how he will behave in response to that event. See, it's not what happens to you that is the decisive and important factor, but what happens in you. Now, I am not in any way minimizing what has happened to many of you. Many of you are going through really, really, really tough times and continue to go through through tough times. I'm not minimizing that. And what I'm telling you, the most important thing is what's happening inside of you as it relates to what's happening to you. See, here's the great illusion, is that the things that happen to me, my circumstances, control my outcome. They control how I feel and how I'm going to respond. I am the way I am. I feel the way I feel because of what has happened to me. That's not true. That's not completely true. It's not because of what has happened to you, but it's your evaluation, It's what you are telling yourself about what has happened to you that determines how you feel and how you will behave and respond to the events of life. That's why you can have two people going through precisely the same situation and have totally polar opposite responses to the situation. Because where they differ is not... You know, obviously, the circumstances, but it's in their beliefs. One becomes, one becomes bitter and one becomes better. My wife and I were talking about these two gals that we had kind of watched their life, the trajectory of their lives. Both of them were Christians. And one, at the end of, of her life, she was extremely bitter, complained a lot. The other one was unbelievably better, un- unbelievable attitude. And it wasn't the circumstance because both of them had experienced a, a great degree of pain and suffering in their lives. And in fact, the one, the one who was bitter actually, if you know, her, her home life was, was a bit better. In fact, the circumstances seemed to be a little bit better, more promising than the one who was actually had a more character and was better as a result of it. And it really came down to their, their attitudes. It came down to, to their evaluation of the events in their life. I used to always think that I was one of these type of people that was really upbeat and positive. And, you know, when you look at a glass, whether it's half empty, half full, always, I always thought I was a half full kind of guy until I met my wife. <laughs> and I realized that she's a, she's a half full kind of gal, and I'm actually more half empty. I tend to look more on the negative side of, of things. And uh, it's always interesting when I talk about certain topics, you know, like our circumstances, sometimes things happen to me. And this last week, I was working out with weights on my universal weight machine, and I was like, I was on the fly part of it. I was like straining, and the thing snapped. The cable snapped off of the the weights and came around and smacked me on the head right here. Do you guys see that? You guys are laughing. And uh, it came around and smacked me on the head. I don't know if it was the cable or what it was, but I mean, I mean... There was, was about seven, eight hundred pounds of weight on and the whole foundation shook. Whoo! My wife hears this, hears this crack, whack. She goes, What happened? And I was like dazed. I was standing there with my hand in my my head in my hand, blood filling up my hand. I go, oh and just knocked the heck out of my head. And I certainly probably needed stitches, but forget stitches we got butterflies. So she pulled it together and put a couple butterflies on it and then later on pulled them off and put this liquid, uh, liquid uh, bandage stuff on there and it seems to be okay. It kind of looks like snot up there though, doesn't it? Huh? Is it uh, glistening in the light? But, uh, but after my wife quit laughing at me, She was able to put the bandages on. But she's, you know, she's always been real upbeat. But here I'm thinking, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, I probably need to do better maintenance on my workout machine. (laughs) That's what I need to do. But uh, I'm like kind of ticked off and kind of trying to reorient myself. And she's like, man, I am so thankful that it didn't hit your eye. It's like, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, after kind of talking with her and we kind of worked through that, I thought, you're kind of half full type gal, aren't you? Even though you did laugh at me, that's a little sadistic. But other than that, other than that, I mean, she was kind of like looking more at the positive side. I'm like, you know, whimpering. Oh, I'll never be the same. Knock me silly. She said, you're already silly. and uh, But it's interesting how we begin to evaluate the, the circumstances of our life. Here's the next point on, on the notes here. Is that let your... Actions speak louder than your words. the Bible talks a lot about Matthew five thirteen through sixteen says that we are to be salt and light. James one nineteen through twenty seven says don't be just hearers of the word, be doers. James two fourteen through twenty six it says that faith without works is dead. John thirteen thirty four and thirty five you guys familiar with that? It says by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love. By your love for one another. How do, how will people know that we know Jesus? Love. Love. It was interesting. We were headed to a wedding last night and uh, one of those car deals again, okay? I was trying to get into the traffic. It was stacked. And the guy wouldn't let me get in. I went ahead and kind of forced my way in. And he was mad. And, yeah, how dare him. And just and, and for an instant, I had one of those, you know, kind of like one of those moments where it goes, whoop, Reaction, recovery. Reaction, recovery. I think, mean, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I, I'm, I'm able to catch myself before, before that now. And a lot of times, not always. But see, the gospel is not a doctrine of tongue, but of life. John Calvin says that. It's about our life. And there's three characteristics that we see in Paul. Let me, let's go through these. And then uh, we're going to knock these out, and then we're going to give you opportunity for prayer this morning. We're going to have three stations up here for you to come forward and be anointed with oil and, and so that we can pray with you uh, no matter what what you're struggling with, whatever it is. But let's take a look at this. Here's three characteristics that we see in Paul's life. As we, as we learn to let our actions speak louder than our words, there's this cheerfulness, cheerfulness in the midst of, of negative circumstances. That almost sounds a little plastic, doesn't it? But it's not really because when you look back at verse 10, did you notice that? When he's, when he's addressing Felix, the governor, he says, I cheerfully make my defense. That word cheerful is well-disposed, kind of good cheer, of good courage. See, there's a difference between being defensive and giving a defense. Paul, you don't get any hint that he's defensive. Defensiveness... I put too much weight in what people say about me, and so I tend to be defensive because I put too much in what people, you know, when they praise me, that inflates me. When they criticize me, it deflates me. And so so when if you find yourself being defensive, it's it's because of insecurity. It's based on misplaced identity. But Paul Paul's not threatened here. There's this cheerfulness in the midst of negative circumstances. It's a deep, durable delight in the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for him that has ruined him for anything else. There's no bad circumstance that could take that from him. He has a joy. Joy is, is not... Uh, the, the opposite of joy is not sadness, but it's hopelessness. And so he has a hope, a, a buoyancy in his life that though life may push him down, it doesn't keep him down. He keeps coming up. Why is that? Because he has this delight, he has this, um, this pleasure that he finds in the eternal privileges he has in Jesus Christ. Joy, cheerfulness in the midst of negative circumstances. And then there's a clear conscience in the midst of false accusations. Remember the Paul's uh, reaction recovery time in verse 23, or chapter 23, we studied it last week. Remember when Paul is addressing this This court there in Jerusalem, he says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I like that. That's so good. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And then those who stood by uh, said to Paul, Would you revile God's high priest? Notice Paul's uh, quick recovery here. He says, and and Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So so you got this reaction and then a recovery time. Just as I was saying last night going to this wedding, someone kind of like tries to run me off the road or flips me off or whatever. I got that quick reaction, quick recovery. Is that narrowing? Are you seeing a narrowing to your spirituality and your reality, to your beliefs and your behavior? By the way, to have a clear conscience doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you're learning to have a quicker reaction recovery time. That there's a narrowing to the gap. That you're beginning to take responsibility for the sins you've committed And you're dealing with the sins that have been committed to you appropriately. You're taking them to the cross. You're repenting. You're responding. You're loving. You're learning how to forgive those that have hurt you and offended you. You're learning good, healthy boundaries in your life. To have a good conscience doesn't mean that you're perfect, but only that your conscience is accurately helping you make biblical judgments about your attitude and actions that involves both sins you have committed and the sins committed against you, as I've said so growth happens when I learn to apply the love of God to my heart specific to where it is most restless. So where's your heart most restless this morning? Are you, do you have inordinate worry? You're worried about something in your life? Anxiety? Anger? You're so angry? When someone's name is brought up, it's like, ah! Oh. You see, that would be sin. Or do you have depression? Sense of hopelessness that seems to be inordinate? That's dominating your life? See, it's in the midst of that. As you become in touch with that, it's where Christ can meet you in that point of need. So, so as we begin to grow, growth happens when I learn to apply the love of God to my heart, specific to where it is most restless. You've got to take your subjective, inordinate feelings and connect them to the objective truth of God's word. And over time, I was able to deal with the fact that I wanted to do the Clint Eastwood, go ahead and make my day to every driver that was out there. I mean, I had to deal with the stuff that was in my heart. Why would I do that? What's going on? And that's just one of many things in my life. Here's the next one. So cheerfulness in the midst of negative circumstances, clear conscience in the midst of false accusations, Christ-centeredness in the midst of a self-centered world. If you had an opportunity to talk with the person who could set you free from prison, what would you talk to them about? If your life is centered on you, you would be talking to them about Getting out of prison. That would be, what do I need to do to get out of prison? But if your life is centered, that is really a great tune out there. I just want to start kind of going like, woo, yeah. I know that you are so involved with the message right now that you don't even hear that phone, and I thank God for that. That is really cool. Reaction recovery, reaction recovery. How am I going to respond? <laughs> There you go, man. I used that stuff used to really tick me off. And if someone's someone else's phone goes off, it probably will the next time. Because I'm still working on that in my my heart, trying to narrow that gap. So Christ centeredness, if you had an opportunity to talk to the people who could get you out of prison, what would you talk to them about? Guess what Paul talks to them about? Jesus! <laughs> the glory of god the glory of jesus yeah things are pretty bad right now but man i'll tell you what i've never seen it more clearly and i love him so much and if he wants to use this in my life to help others see him praise god for that may he be glorified in my life that's what he's saying that's what's going on i mean so verse 24 he talks about he talks about jesus and then he talks about these three tenses of salvation so how do we do this I mean, how do we do this? Have cheerfulness in the midst of negative circumstances? Clear conscience in the midst of false accusations? Christ-centeredness in the midst of a self-centered world when we want to make life all about us? Here's the answer. Here it is. Don't miss this. If you miss this, you've missed the most important thing. It's right here. Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the verdict comes before the performance. The performance never leads to the verdict. You know what the verdict is? When you look at the cross, here's the verdict. Here's the verdict to you and I who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Past sins forgiven. Present problems managed because He indwells you with His Holy Spirit. Future is secure. He's got you covered. The bad things will work out for your good. Your truly good things cannot be taken from you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And the best is yet to come. That's the verdict. The verdict is you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter and whom I am well pleased. I am madly in love with you i love you and your position with me knowing me cannot be ever threatened and so it's out of that that verdict it's out of that verdict then it begins to change who we are in our performance oh my goodness i used to get it backwards i used to beat the heck out of myself this isn't meant to beat you up to say come on come on if you're accused of being a christian is there enough evidence to convict you Then get out there, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder, redouble your efforts. That's not it. That's not the gospel. When I see the gap in my life, I see I have an opportunity to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, to fix my eyes on him because at that moment, I'm giving my heart to something or someone else. And that's why I've got the inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression operating in my life. It's an invitation to know him, to experience him. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, the trial is over, court adjourned. When your behavior invalidates your beliefs, don't focus on your behavior and your beliefs, but focus on the amazing object of your beliefs Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me every week that you would be captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That's what I want for you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity for prayer. And there'll be three stations up here when we're finished. And what we're going to do is we're just going to play some quiet music. I would just have you to sit here this morning and just reflect on on the beauty of Jesus. Maybe if you don't know him, I would encourage you just uh, to open your heart to him and say, I don't know this Jesus that Ray is talking about, but obviously he really transforms lives and I need my life transformed and I would like to know him. And just a simple prayer like that as you open your heart to him man, he will reveal himself to you. If you'll be real with him, he'll be real with you. If you'll open your heart to him, he will come into your life and transform you like you have never been transformed before. You do that through acknowledging your sin that separates you from God, from kind of living life your own way and believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all your sins and then confessing him as Lord and Savior. And then I would invite you to come up and have one of our, one of our teams pray for you and just confess it and say, hey, I've, I've committed my life to Jesus this morning. Would you pray with me? I want to really know Him and experience Him. No matter what your needs are this morning, whether they be physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, we would love to pray with you. The Bible tells us in the sixth chapter of James that if anyone has need, let them call the elders of the church, anointing them with oil. Oil represents the oil, and that text represents not only... A medicine, you need to take your medicine and do the things that are appropriate for healing, but it also represents the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. We will anoint you with oil and pray for you that God will minister to you and bring healing to your life. So God, thank you for this message this morning. And I know that in my life, too often, there's this crazy gap between what I say I believe and even what I teach and what I'm really living. God, I want you to continue to work in my life, work in our lives, that we want to be people that uh, bring glory to you, and that, God, you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. And that can happen regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of our lives. Help us to live that out each and every day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Just sit quietly. If at some point you feel like you're ready to leave, just exit quietly, if you would, please. And for those of you that would like to have prayer, you can come forward. There'll be... Two places up here and then one right back there. God bless you. Next week we'll be talking about going deeper into our heart, talking about how to guard our hearts, how we kind of work better at doing this. God bless you.